Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your scriptures, Lord, that speak to us across the centuries, Lord, across the millennia. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are here with us and that you do not leave us to figure things out on our own. Uh, Lord, you are going to speak truth to us. You're going to speak what's really real. And Lord, you're going to help us today understand this difficult passage, this passage that, um, Lord, can, can be a struggling uh, passage for us, Lord, as we read it. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us the, the ears to hear, soften our hearts, and prepare us for what you're going to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Tony. You guys may be seated. So two questions. First off, what do you fear? You don't have to yell it out loud. It's okay. I won't make you say it. But also, what, what do you love? These are two very important questions. As a matter of fact, these are two questions that today Jesus is going to indirectly deal with. And if we're honest, one question is easier to answer than the other. One question is a lot more um, chosen to be answered. It's hard for us to talk about fear, isn't it? I mean, yes, we can say there are people out there that make their living selling fear. We can talk about fear-mongering. We can talk about all sorts of things like that. But when it comes to hitting home, we struggle sometimes with admitting what we fear. However, talking about love is really easy. As a matter of fact, I would say we love to talk about love. If anything, we might overuse the word love and use it maybe for some things that we don't actually just love. We just maybe want to eat at that moment, or want to watch at that moment, or like being around. See, with, with fear and with love, this is what Jesus is going to deal with today. He wants to deal with what we fear, and as he's done throughout the book of Matthew, he wants to reorient our fears. And with our loves, he wants to do the same thing. So let's put it this way, kind of help us get our minds around what we fear. Instead of being what you fear, and you know, it's something like gigantic, you know, spiders or snakes or something along those lines, yes, we fear those, but what is it that actually we worry about? What are we anxious about? Because that will actually point us in our lives, in our daily lives, to the things that we fear. What, what, what consumes us about focusing on this thing that causes us stress, that keeps us up at night? Now, maybe it's spiders and snakes, but I'm thinking if you think about it, what you're anxious and what you worry about, now it changes a little bit. How about instead of what do you love, since we overuse that term, how about where do we focus our energy and our attention? If we were to talk about where we focus our focus, where do, where do we spend our time on because honestly, what we spend our time on, and especially our free time, tells us exactly what we love. So today, Jesus wants to deal with these. And if we're honest, love and fear or worry and what we put our attention on, these are gut-level things. You don't have to tell somebody to fear something or to worry. You don't have to tell somebody to like or to love something. And honestly, these emotions, they are the priorities in our lives, aren't they? They drive what we do. They decide what we do or what we don't do. Many times they're rivals, but a lot of times they can be right there together. We're worrying about something we love. So today, Jesus wants to change what we worry about, what we fear, 
and he also wants to make sure our loves are in the right order. And we, this is what we should expect. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus comes in and goes, y'all are expecting this, and this is what you get. The upside-down kingdom, right? I mean, it starts with the fact that God became a human. I mean, that right there is totally backwards. I mean, the Roman gods kind of became humans, and the Greek gods kind of became humans, but it was to come down and get into trouble, not to come down and fix something. And a god would never die for a pathetic human. But yet, this is the God we serve. This is the God that comes down not only to die for us, not only to live the life we shouldn't, but also to free us from our fears and to rightly orient our loves. So come with me now as we get into this passage. Let's discover what Jesus says. So here's our big idea. It's a long one, so if you want to snap a picture or just email me, I'll send you the the notes. As ambassadors for the king... That's us, if we're followers of Christ. Jesus exhorts his disciples to be free from fear, to confess him, and to love him more than all others. So this passage is is long, and it's one of those passages where probably, again, we should have broken it into three smaller sermons, because each one of these probably deserves a sermon. However, they all tie together because they are dealing with what do we fear and what do we love? So his followers, we saw last week, are encouraged. Jesus suffered. Jesus went through stuff, and we are going to go through similar things. From the resistance of people who won't want to listen to us, to the mighty works of the Spirit in our lives, to the fact that he is right there with us. He will not forsake us. So now Jesus wants to reorient our views. Now, what is the most common command in the Bible? Some people will say it's something like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's not in the Bible that often. What is the number one commandment? Well, the top two at least is do not be afraid. Do not fear. As a matter of fact, somebody went through and counted all of the different ways that that is put out there, and it's 365 times. I don't think that's on accident. In fact, this passage is going to talk about fear three times in the negative and one time in the positive because Jesus knows we like to worry. We like to fear. We like to get our focus on the bad things that could happen. So here we go. First characteristic of a disciple of Christ is that they have a right fear. They fear correctly. Because again, what's the question? What do you fear? What causes you worry? So Jesus says, do not be afraid. Do not worry. Why? Because a time of disclosure, a time of hidden truths being made public is coming. Look at verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. So that word so ties back to last week's chapters, uh, verses 24 and 25. And now, he, what he's doing is what we saw last week, which is he's taking what he's already taught on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, remember that lesson I taught back here? Yeah, there's going to be a test. It's called the mission I'm sending you on. And he says, this is what you've got to do. Chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Verse 33. But seek first... And remember when we went through that passage, that word seek means to continuously never stop seeking. So he's saying seek first and continuously the kingdom of God 
and all these things will be added to you. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, this is not something to be worried about. Stop worrying. Stop being fearful. One author says that have no fear should be do not ever be afraid of these people or what they can do. Why? Because it says what was covered, what is concealed, what is hidden is going to be uncovered. The idea here is that anything that you suffer as a follower of Christ is not hidden from the one who sees and it will not stay hidden. Jesus does not explain exactly what that means here. Later on, he will. But the point is, do not fear. Scottish theologian John Knox, who lived in the 16th century, was famous for how bold he was in the face of danger. Some people would say he was almost crazy in that he would not fear anybody. So when he died, they published a a, a writing that said, here lies the one who feared God so much that he never had fear in the face of any man. That's the picture that we see of someone who understands fear rightly. So how do we get to this? Well, look at verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Now, the housetops in Palestine and Israel were flat. Our roofs would be a little bit harder to stand on a roof and preach. But in this time, he says, proclaim openly what's out there. Don't worry about what happens. Instead, proclaim it from the rooftops, from the mountaintops. If you remember, Jesus has been a little shy with some of these proclamations, hasn't he? He's kind of said, now don't tell anybody I did this. Don't, Don't share it yet. Don't go anywhere yet. But Jesus is saying, you need to understand there's a time where everything that is done will be uncovered and everything that I've taught you is proclaimed everywhere. As a matter of fact, we see this in Revelation 14, don't we? Where every creature on earth will hear, every mouth will hear, every ear, well, mouth won't hear, every ear will hear, every mouth will confess. That's the right direction. The idea here is don't go tiptoeing around worrying what people are going to think when you share Jesus. Now, I remember in seminary, my professor said, don't use yourself as an example. And I was like, okay. And then he had this one little caveat, unless it's a negative example. So here we go. (laughs) I I, I have a t-shirt at home, a sweatshirt that says, Jesus is God. Big block letters. It's a nice, cozy sweatshirt. It's one of my favorites to wear. But I tell you what, when I put it on, I think through all the places I'm going that day because I'm thinking... Am I going to lose friendships? Am I going to lose relationships? Am I going to offend? Is somebody going to stop when they're walking their dog and yell at me because they disagree with what my shirt says? So this is, this is tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to not do anything to ruffle the feathers of people that we're walking around and we're encountering. You know, when we're around non-believers, we do have times when we're going to be offensive. And for me, I'd rather have them know me and know Christ through me than a sweatshirt. But at the same time, that sweatshirt causes me a lot of anxiety. Who will I see today? So in verse 28, he tells us whom we should fear. We should not fear what someone thinks about our sweatshirt. Instead, we should fear somebody else. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This do not fear uh, is used in the New Testament a hundred times making it the most common command in all of the New Testament. 
Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear them. Do not fear others. Our our world is so driven by what others are going to think about us that it runs our lives. It is a worry. It is a fear. And if you haven't felt that fear, I'm jealous of you because when you post something, when you write something, when you text something, when you talk to someone, when you stick your your, your neck out, we talked about this a few weeks ago, about when you stand for righteousness, there's going to be a cost. And sometimes that cost might be relationships with other people. Jesus recognizes this. He actually talks about hatred and flogging and death. But he says, let's get it in the right order. That's the worst they can do. But it's not the worst he can do. The worst he can do is condemnation unto hell. And so there is no, there is no comparison We are saying, I'd rather not follow God because I don't want to rumple feathers for this little teeny life that I have, but when it comes to eternity, I'm, I'm I'm okay with whatever happens. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as he was waiting in a prison cell to be put to death, he said, those who are still afraid of men have no fear of God. Those who have a fear of God have ceased to be afraid of men. When the Bible says, do not fear what they fear, it means we are to question our fears. What is the source of this? Am I fearing this? Am I worrying about this? Because I'm holding on to this life too tightly? Am I holding on to it and saying, this is, I gotta just, gotta get as much out of this life as possible? That is an absolutely God-forsaken way to view your life here and now. The Bible says the exact opposite of that. We need to be somebody who lives for eternity, not lives to extend the life here, not lives to try to be all that you can be in this life. He wants our fears in the right perspective. And the second half of 28, he tells us, he says, fear God only, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. See, the thing about it is, is that Our fear emerges from the fact that we got the worst in mind that this world can offer. We're forgetting the worst that God can offer. Satan has great power, but he cannot send us to hell. All he can do is mess with our bodies. This morning, fortuitously, providentially, God had my Bible reading be Job and the opening passage of Job. It says Satan the accuser comes before God and God goes, yeah, you can't kill him. All you can do is take his stuff. Yeah, you can't kill him. All you can do is touch his body. See, even Satan, this one that we should definitely not be dabbling in and who is stronger and more powerful than us, is under God's sovereign control. Because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If we truly fear God, we need fear nothing else. If God is our focus, our worries should fall away. Now, Jesus doesn't just leave us there because that's not a very fun ending. He goes into verses 29 to 31, and he says, the third reason why you should not worry is because your Father cares for you. Your Father, your heavenly Father. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Now, sparrows, where did this come from? Did Jesus just pull this out? Actually, this was the smallest animal that was sold for food in Israel. And, you know, sparrows are pretty small. They're little tiny things. There's not a lot of meat on that sparrow. And that's why you'd pay a penny for two of them. A penny would be about one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius would be what you get paid for a whole day's work. So we're talking about, about a half hour's worth of pay to get a dove that has maybe two pieces of meat that you can eat. 
But he says, look at this, apart from God, they don't fall. He's in charge of all of them. And notice what it says there. It doesn't say the Father. It doesn't say a Father. It says your Father and my Father if we are in Christ. Remember, the good news is that, yes, we get to go to heaven. The good news is, yes, our sins are not on us anymore. But behind all of that is we are a part of God's chosen family. And our family does not stretch just where our blood relatives go. It stretches through eons and it stretches through all of eternity with all of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he is our father. And if he cares about the sparrows, you better believe he cares about us. Look at verse 30. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Now modern science has figured out that we have about 100,000 to 500,000 hairs on our head. I don't know who was in charge of counting that. That sounds like a pretty bad job. Now, the hair on our heads may not always be where we like it. It sprouts up in all sorts of unique places as we get older and changing colors and not for the good. But this verse is saying that God knows every single erratic, proliferating hair on our heads. He knows every single one. And no matter how much we care about our hair, and our styles, and where the hair is and where it isn't, we don't care for it as much as God does because he's numbered every single one. So see what he's done here is he's argued twice. He says, these little teeny sparrows with a little bit of meat on them, I care so much for them that one falls from the tree, I know when it falls. Not only that, but the most insignificant thing, which is do I have 102,000 hairs or do I have 103,000 hairs on my head? Where are they? Where are they coming? What color are they? God knows all of them. And if he knows that about you and he knows that about the sparrow, then do not fear. He is in control. He cares more about the details of our lives than we do. So 31, he tells us, you are of greater worth than all the sparrows. 31, fear not, therefore you are worth more, more valuable than many sparrows. That word many sparrows just means a flock of sparrows. And we think about this, you know, the verse that so many people in this world know, we miss what it's saying. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. He so loved the world. The world was of value to him, so much so that he sent his most prized possession to capture the world. This argument from the lesser to the greater, since the heavenly Father is sovereignly in control over insignificant things like sparrows and hares, he is completely in control of you. See, a lot of people especially in churches, think that God only really worries about the big issues, that he's only concerned with big things that are going on. But that's not what we see in the Bible. We see that God cares for every single atom in the universe. Every single one is under his sovereign control. See, we, we struggle with this idea that God is infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and we throw all these big words out, and we go, what does that even mean? Well, it means that he's no end, he understands everything, he is everywhere, and he's all-powerful. And we get that, but we don't live that because we go, he doesn't care about any of my insignificant stuff. And Jesus is here saying, no, he cares. 
of all the bundles of atoms in the universe. He cares about this bundle and that bundle and that bundle. Every single one of these bundles that's walking around on two legs that are human, he cares for. I don't know why. We seem to let him down more than anything else, but yet he cares for us. This collection of atoms is special to him, and he values us. So that's Jesus' first point. Don't fear, don't worry, because God is in control, and I value you. The next thing we see, a characteristic of a disciple, is that they confess Christ. This is kind of a, a continuation of this. If he values us, why would we not want to confess him? So we see we are to have fearless confession. We are to apply this fear of God and that we will confess God. Look at verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That word acknowledge means to confess or agree with verbally, out loud. See, it's really easy for us. We can avoid a lot of persecution. We can avoid a lot of heartache. We can avoid a lot of things that will cause us stress by simply keeping our mouths shut. But right here, it says, no, we are to confess. We are to say, we know there is a God in heaven, and Christ came. See, remember, this whole section is not just for pastors. It's not just for missionaries. It's for every single believing Christian. What did he say? Let your light shine, right? Let be salt of the earth. All of those are everybody's to do them. And so he, he, he wants us to get this. Look at verse 33. He says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies, whoever disowns, whoever rejects, I will reject. There's some eternal consequences here. Jesus is not mincing words. He's talking about eternal rejection. He's talked about hell. He says, this is a life and death issue. Eternal life and death. Again, not because we've earned it, but because this is the response to what Christ has done. We do confess Christ once. We do believe in Him. We put our faith in Him. And every single one of us has a day that we started doing that. But the idea is, is that it must continue on. And we must continually do that. We must confess Him daily. I'm reminded of the, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, where the hero, Atticus Finch, is a lawyer in a small town. He's tasked with defending a black man who has been charged with a crime, a brutal crime, falsely accused with that brutal crime. The book is set in the 1930s. The town is soaked in racism and prejudice. And Atticus says, I'm going to do my job, even if it makes me and my family unpopular. He says to his children, I could not go to church and worship God if I didn't try to help that man. Now, Atticus may have meant that he was trying to earn his way to God, and maybe he gets that wrong, but his statement is still very sound in that what we do needs to matter, match what we confess. What we talk about right here, the words that we just sang, Christ is mine forevermore. We are confessing that when we sing it. Are we confessing that tomorrow morning? Are we confessing that as we move into whatever the Lord has for us the remainder of this day? If we say we worship God, we must not live like it's like on our vocations day by day that it is not Him that we serve. See, there's no neutral ground. 
We like to think that there's this, we come to church and this is our Christian ground and then we go to our jobs and it's neutral and it's just kind of this place of nobody does anything about anything religious. It's just neutral. But we need to understand, Christ has some strong words to say about trying to be neutral about him. Look at Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one or despise the other. Matthew 12.30 says, whoever is not with me is against me. See, the thing is, there is no neutral, right? If we go to our job tomorrow and the rule is you have to pretend that there's no God and that Jesus Christ doesn't exist and that there is nothing, that's not neutral. That's called atheism. It's a worldview. It's a religion. And so you need to get it out of your mind that there's anywhere that you go in your life this week that Jesus is not supposed to go with you. Part of the reason why the church has lost any influence on the culture is because we've compartmentalized where Jesus belongs. We confess him here with our mouths and our voices and our tithes and our offerings and our attendance, but then we go out and we deny him for six days straight. We live practical atheism. See, here's the thing. We fear what those people are going to do to us, when in actuality, we need to fear what God will do to us if we deny him. But fear not. The point here is not be afraid, be scared of God. No, fear not because God does not lose a single one of his sheep. Look at this, John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that's God, that I, Jesus, should not lose, lose nothing that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. So no matter what you experience, nothing is going to take that salvation away from you if you are in Christ. He is going to hold you. So stop fearing the world. He is faithful. So we've seen do not fear and then confess. And now as we get into our, our next one, I want to tell you a little story. Imagine you have a new neighbor moving in. They're moving in from a new state. It's a, it's a young couple. They move in, and so you go over and you, you talk to them and you say, hey, you know, let's get to know each other. You have dinner, and as the dinner goes, you start talking about your church. You say, hey, come to church with us. Hey, come to our life group. And you invite them, and they come, and they go, well, we kind of like this, so they keep coming. And eventually, they submit to God's call on their life, and they become believers. And then the holidays roll around, and they go back home to visit family. And when they get back home, they tell their family, hey, we are Christians, we've, 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 we're believers. And the family, which is full of unbelievers, goes, oh, that's nice. And they kind of push it aside, pretending it didn't happen. But as the holiday goes on, by the end of the evening, someone goes, now you are a Christian, so you believe we're all going to hell, right? You can imagine what happens next. You can imagine the stress. I mean, the holidays can be stressful anyways, but adding that to it. This is what Jesus foresees in our next characteristic of disciples. The third characteristic of disciples is that they love Christ more than family, even more than their own lives, even more than life itself. So here Jesus is saying, what do you love? 
What takes up your thoughts on a daily basis? Because ultimately, we need to love the right things in the right order. We need to love the right things rightly. And for some, a family can be too important. And we see this in verse 34, that Jesus did not come to bring peace. Now, this is a really hard statement of Jesus. Look at verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. Remember, Jesus has come to reorient our way of viewing the world. And this is most clearly seen in our families. This is most clearly seen in our marriages. Conflict and disagreement are going to rise whenever you put an unbeliever and a believer together. You are saved. So you go home and you tell your mom, you're an idiot, you should be a Christian. That conflict is what you deserve at that point. And whatever dear mom throws at you, you probably deserved. But if you go home and you say, mom, I'm I'm a believer and, and I'm leaving it at that. And as you are around her, she sees this changed individual, this humility, this witnessing in words and deeds. And as you do that, she begins to see the gospel in you. And if she rejects that, there is no longer unity with your mom. Instead, there's division. There is now a space between them. See, Jesus is not saying, I've come to do this. I've come to divide people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, my primary commitment is to tell sinners to repent. Because there's two groups. There's those who are sinners who repent, and then there's sinners who say, I'm not a sinner. Don't judge me. Don't tell me how to live my life. I'm in charge. And those two groups are going opposite directions. This is the division that Jesus is talking about. Now, if you, if you remember any of your Christmas songs, you know we sing that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. Matter of fact, we recite the phrases in the, in the Old Testament like Isaiah 9-6 that says he's the prince of peace. So how does this work? This seems to contradict it. I mean, Jesus even says it himself. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, let, neither let them be afraid. This peace that we're talking about here, though, is not peace between unbelievers and believers. It's not even peace horizontally. It's peace vertically. This side of heaven, there is not going to be peace on earth. Instead, the peace is between us and God. Let me show you. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And let the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul even is more clear in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying... Our biggest problem is that we don't have peace with God. That's the peace that Jesus came to give us. He came to give us peace with God to fix the gulf that's between us and Him because of our sins. And so we are going to be opposed. We see this in countless places. John 15, 18 makes it really clear. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, the peace that we, we get from God is the peace of knowing we are right with God. The peace of knowing we are adopted into his family, his eternal family that will never end. But the world will not like that peace. The world will fight against that peace. We must understand that knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior does not mean you'll have a peaceful life. If that's sold to you in a church, it's a lie. Because Jesus is saying over and over again, you're going to experience trials, you're going to experience tribulation. When you follow me, it's going to divide. But the good news is is that your sins are gone. So let's be honest. If you want the world to like you, you're in the wrong building this morning. If you want the world to celebrate you, you're in the wrong place. Jesus is not the way to go about getting the world to like you. Jesus wants to see this clearly. He does not want us to imagine a vacation that when we've come to be believers, guess what? It's a Hawaiian vacation for all of the rest of your life. Because if that's what we are sold, as soon as something goes wrong and we realize this looks a lot more like a boot camp than a vacation, no wonder people walk away. So hear this correctly. Our vacation is for eternity. Our vacation is not for here and now. Right here and right now, we are going to be resisted if we are in Christ, if we're a believer. But praise be to God that our biggest problem has been solved. So again, conversion to Christ will strain family relationships. It will lead to persecution. It may even lead to your death. But following Christ fixes the problem you have with God. And there's more to it than that. Let's keep going. Verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is a direct quote from Micah 7. This is not Jesus saying, disobey your parents. Instead, he's saying, following me will cost. There will be conflict. And if we think about it, the two places where there's the most likely to be conflict in, in this world are with a husband and a wife, and a husband and wife and their other family members. We don't even need to be Christians to have conflict with family members, right? You all know this. And it's because of intimacy, right? We are more intimate with family members. We have times where we get together them. We break bread. We spend time with them. The fact that I'm a believer does not have any effect on my guy who pumps my gas. But it's going to have an effect with me and my parents, with me and my spouse, with me and my kids. Even Jesus' family did not believe in him at first until the resurrection. So Jesus says in verse 36, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, we see this own household from last week's sermon, the idea that you're going to be resisted for your stance. An example of this is Perpetua, she was a, a martyr in northern Africa. Her father turns her in for not worshiping the emperor. She has a brand new baby at home, and father turns her in and says, if you don't worship, they're going to kill you. 
and your daughter's going to be raised as an orphan. Couldn't you do that? And Perpetua goes, yeah, my God has never done anything to me. Why would I deny him? And she ends up being killed for that. Her own father turned her in to try to get her to worship the emperor. See, this, this whole thing that we've been talking about, about family, makes no sense if we don't get two basic biblical truths here. The first one is that our world is wholeheartedly in rebellion against God. Everywhere. Even our best institutions, like family and the good parts of government, even those are selfish and self-interested. They want a domesticated God, kind of like a bellhop or a butler, that they can call and say, hey, I need my pillows fluffed, God. Can you come do that? And see, the amazing thing is, and this is where we get, we get in trouble, is that God's common grace, that's where he gives all people everywhere some good stuff, right? What does it say in the Bible? The rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your house looks nicer than the non-Christian. Everybody's looks the same. So God gives these good things. And even places like families that are not dedicated to Jesus, even the good parts of government are still self-absorbed and self-interested and they're still pursuing self, not God. So that's the first thing we must remember, that our world is wholeheartedly given over to that. The second thing is that with all of these idols, there's only one solution, and that is devotion to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And if we don't get those two things, all of this about the divisions in family make no sense. If we believe there's multiple ways, then there's no reason to divide families. There's no reason to speak up about Christ because there's all these ways. It's a choose-your-own-adventure of who gets to heaven. Or being in a family is what saves. And so if that's the case then why, why split it? So we need to understand that the American dream family is not what you get when you follow Christ. Blessings and salvation do not come from having a family. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Following the guidelines of the Bible for a family is not how we are saved. It's not accomplishing what God has said. One author writes this, God has given us many good gifts in this life. Money is a gift. Sex is a gift. Work is a gift. Athletic ability, musical skills, gifts. Intelligence and beauty are gifts. No one doubts that all these good gifts can be idols. And just like the family, the family is profoundly good and a necessary foundational element of God's design. But it is not ultimate. It is not God. Family makes a terrible God. Many, many do not have families and are not tempted in this way. So now Jesus goes, not only does putting your family up there as the thing that you will not bring Christ into, he goes, well, some people don't have families, so he goes to the next step, which is our lives. Because if we're honest, I mean, if we're really honest, the thing that takes most of our attention is ourselves. Our biggest idol is ourself. Yeah, maybe we couch it and I do all these other things for other people, but it makes me feel good and that's the driving. So underneath it all is my life is what's most important to me. And we see this. Now Jesus says, let's get this in the right order. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
This idea of putting the love of your father or mother or your children above God. This idea of worthy is the same thing we saw earlier about the going to certain towns that are worthy. Jesus is saying, I want unqualified allegiance. This is more than any other rabbi, any other teacher had ever demanded in Israel at this time. And if Jesus is not God, this is the craziest demand ever. But his point here is that you are to love God and his kingdom and it precedence over every relationship, including ourselves. Instead of thinking about it as, oh, I have to love my, my family less, because that's a really, that's hard. I'm going to love them less. I'm going to love God more. No. Adore your family. Treasure your family. Treasure your kids. I don't care how many billions of dollars someone gives me. I'm not getting rid of them, even on their worst days. Yes, even their worst days. I'm not getting rid of them. They're my treasure. So now, this passage says they are not supposed to be the biggest treasure, so what do I need to do? I need to start allowing Christ to be above that. This isn't about bringing your family down. This is not a, hey, let's rag on the family because it's not Mother's Day so we can do this passage this week. No, this is saying your family is important. Jesus needs to be more. Jesus needs to be higher. He's saying to Matthew, and Matthew writes this down, a man must love his wife, his family, his friends, even his enemies, but no one should doubt that your supreme love is Jesus Christ. And he tells us how to do this, verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Christ following, cross bearing, they go hand in hand. There is no separation. And we have to remember, this would, have been, this would have been absolutely astounding. We beauty up our crosses, and people wear them as accessories, and we put them on buildings. I mean, this one looks really nice, and I, I'm not getting rid of it. I like it. But this would have been offensive. This would have been like in some places in our country, a noose. This is an electric chair. This is a guillotine. This is bamboo shoots under fingernails. This is torture. And yet, he says, take up your cross. This is a degrading death. So now he's hitting the final touch point, which is your life. Is your life something you love higher than me, or do I go higher than your life? Again, this is not about degrading ourselves. And some people have taken it that way. Unfortunately, they're wrong. It's not about degrading ourselves. It's about loving Christ first and foremost. Will you publicly identify with him if it means your life will end? So again, Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He goes to verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a positive and negative of verse 38. He's saying, if we love life's rewards, the more we will discover that it's empty. We can have the best house. We can have the best life. We can have power and security and popularity and leisure. We can have all of that. But all it takes is your heart stopping and it's gone. And you lost it all. So the best way to enjoy life is to let go of your greedy grip on this world and follow Christ. I love what one author said. He says, if you're doing everything in your power to make it, to get the perfect spouse, the lucrative job, the big house, all the right connections, guess what? According to Jesus, you lose. 
The biggest gainers are the biggest losers. If you're willing to come to Christ as king and give him your life and say, Lord, it's yours. Lord, it's, I don't know what you want with it. Take it. I'll suffer what I need to suffer. I'll do without. I'll take whatever you give me. And this is the irony of it. He says, you will find true life at this point. And you will find reward in this life and most assuredly in the life to come. See, the trap that our world lays for us is this fear that we're going to lose our affiliations. We're going to lose our family. We're going to lose our connections. We may even lose our lives. But Jesus finishes this section by saying, if your family denies you, don't worry about it. I have people that will respond to you and you become a blessing to them. See, this is one of the things that we need to get. When we go to people and we share Christ, yes, we're trying to bless them and teach them and, and, and the Spirit will use us to send them to heaven. But not only that, but when we go to people and they care for us, as ambassadors of Jesus, they are blessed. We become blessings to those who take us in, who, 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 who take care of us. Look at this final characteristic of a disciple. Our oneness with Christ in, others, in, in another's presence provides blessing. Provides blessing. Verse 40, whoever receives me and whoever receives me, whoever receives you receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Again, we're ambassadors. And so we need to understand that, yes, our family may deny us. Our blood relatives may deny us. Our lives may be in danger. Praise be to God, we're allowed to flee those places. We saw that last week. But when we go somewhere and people take us in and they care for us, they are caring not just for us, they are caring for Jesus because we are in his place. Verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive the prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. Verse 42, whoever gives one of those little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That little ones, I like that. The word Christian means little Christs. And this is what the, he, Jesus is calling the disciple. He's calling him his little ones his children. He's trained them up and he says, you're going to go out and anytime anybody takes you in, those people are blessed. Not that they're saved, not that you give them the gospel perfectly and there's this revival that breaks out, but your presence in going out to people as Christians, remember, they have to know you're Christians. Then they accept you. They bring you in. They are blessed by it, even if they do something as simple as giving you a cold glass of water. See, our role as his ambassadors turns around and blesses us as we can bless others. See, this cannot happen if we do not go out. This cannot happen if we do not confess him. This cannot happen if our fears and our worries and our misprioritized loves run our lives. When Christ does lead us, our God, whom we love more than anything else, do it. So this upside-down world that, that, that Christ is bringing us into, he says, it's not what you expect. It's not you die and then something great happens. No, it's, it's exactly the opposite of what the world would put out there. Do not fear death. Fear God. Confess Christ no matter how much it costs. Love Christ more than family. Love Christ more than your own life. And recognize your faithful presence in this world brings blessing 
on all those people. This is Jesus' kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom, but it's a kingdom that will last for all of eternity. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that we get to spend time in your word and see these promises, these promises of not only that you are there with us and that you care for us more than the sparrow, that you number the hairs on our heads, not only that you will care for us no matter who denies us, Lord, but on top of that, you just sweetened it even more that when we go out and we are in the midst of this fallen world, that we can be blessings to those we encounter. Lord, you didn't have to do that, and that's an extra sweetness on top of all the other sweetness you've given us. So, Lord, I pray that today, Lord, if, if we are not a follower of you, that we would give in to your Holy Spirit's call on our heart right now. And, Lord, that if we are following you, I pray that this would help us follow you even better, that we would see that tomorrow is when we must confess you. Tomorrow is the day that we must bring you into this lost world, knowing that when we do that, the people we go to will be blessed. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.